All right, we are in Hebrews chapter 4. We covered half of the chapter last week, Hebrews chapter 4. <clears throat> and let me remind you what the book of the epistle to the Hebrews is all about. These are the Jewish believers, Jewish Christians. They are ethnically Jews, born Jews. They believed in the Messiah Jesus. They are living around Jerusalem in Judea. And the persecution has become very hard upon them. It is 66 to 68 uh, uh, A.D. It is a few years before, it is just a couple of years before the 70 A.D. destruction that's going to hit Jerusalem. They have no idea what's going to hit Jerusalem. They have no idea that in a couple of years Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. They live around Jerusalem and they they are thinking about going back into Judaism because the the persecution upon them is becoming so hard. They have not been persecuted to the point of death. None of them have yet been martyred, but that's about to take place. So they are thinking about rescinding their, their confession on the Lord Jesus Christ and going back into Judaism, thinking that they can go back into Judaism and therefore protect themselves from the persecution that's arising upon them. And then once the persecution subsides, then they can go back and confess Christ. That is what they are dealing with. And the author of the book of Hebrews says, you don't have that option. If you want to rescind what you have already confessed in the Lord, you are going to die physically. It has nothing to do with your spiritual death. He is talking about their physical death. And he relates to them the experience of Kadesh Barnea. When they, they, the, they had the Exodus generation came out of Egypt, they rejected the Lord's teaching. They, they said that they couldn't go into the land. They rejected the teaching through Moses and they died in the wilderness. He used that as an example to them. Because if they go back into Jerusalem, they are going to die in the 70 AD judgment that is coming. The author of the book of Hebrews knows that the time is coming very soon and he makes reference to the 40 years, which was 40 years uh, uh, that he makes reference to is, is the time that they wandered in the wilderness. It is going to be 40 years from the time that, that Jesus made the proclamation to the 70 AD judgment period because he died right about 30 AD. In fact, we, we know very specifically when he died. We're not sure when he was born. It was 5 to 7 BC when he was born. He died in 30 AD, we know it to the day, because it says very specifically that the Sabbath, that the Passover fell on a particular, on the Sabbath day, and that only happens once every seven years. So, uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 4. He again fixes a certain day, today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. These two sentences, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He is quoting from Psalm 95. Psalm 95 is a psalm of David. David wrote a summary of what happened at Kadesh Barnea in the wilderness long before David was born. And he made reference to it. And now this author is quoting from Psalm 95, uh, this summary of David. And, And so David lived somewhere around uh, 800 BC, something like that, 900 BC. And so, so this is nearly a thousand years separated, but he's quoting it. And he says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. This is what the scriptures do with us. They drill right down to our present heart today. It was spoken long ago, 
but it applies very much to us today. He says in verse 8, For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that not one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. What was the example of disobedience? That they did not believe God, that they could take the land... That was going to be their disobedience. They didn't believe that they could go into the the promised land. And as a result of that, they spent another 39 years wandering in the wilderness until that entire generation died off. He says what's going to happen to them is they're going to fall. They're going to lose their physical life. You remember back up in the same chapter in in verse 2, it says, For indeed, we have all had the good news preached to us, just as they also But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. When we hear the same word, two people, one hears the word, the other hears the word. Two people hear the word. One believes it in faith and they receive it. The other doesn't believe and they don't receive it. The offer is put on the table. The question is whether we will receive that which has been put forward to us. He says there were, there were people that heard exactly the same word, but it did not profit them, it says in verse 2, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. The word that we hear has to be united by faith. There has to be uniting with faith. And he says that there's going to be a disobedience. Let us not, that no one will fall through the, following the same example of disobedience. The end of chapter 3 had said, they fe- who was it who fell in the, we- in, the, in the wilderness? Was it not all those who were disobedient? They died in the wilderness. He says they fell in the wilderness. wilderness the end of chapter 3. He, chapter 4, he says, it's going to happen again. It's going to happen to this generation, he says. To the generation in which he was living, he says, you're going to die. What he's warning us about is, we make a decision to walk in maturity. We can make that decision. And he is talking about a Sabbath rest. He talked about a rest that Joshua promised them. That was a rest that they were going to acquire. Once they conquered the promised land, they were going to acquire a state of rest where they wouldn't have to do battle with their enemies anymore. Then he makes reference to a Sabbath rest that God spoke about in the book of Genesis, chapter chapter 2, verse 2 of, of the book of Genesis, where it says, and God rested from all his work. It's very interesting. In the book of Genesis, you will see, it says that God created these sorts of creatures and there was morning and there was evening the second day. And then God created these sorts of creatures, there was morning and evening the third day. He goes all the way on through until he talks about how he had created mankind. And that is the, the ultimate in his creation. Actually, the ultimate in God's creation within humankind was woman, not man. Woman was the ultimate of God's creation. And, and uh, uh, that's where he stopped. And he created woman, and then it says, and there was morning, and there was evening, the sixth day. And then it says, and God rested on the seventh day. It never says, and there was, uh, and it's actually, and there was evening and there was morning. There was evening and there was morning. They use evening first because in Jewish reckoning, the day always starts at around 6 p.m. It starts at sudden sundown. You say, wow, that's odd. No, it's really odd to start a day at 12 Midnight. That's really an odd place to start a day. You would think maybe six in the morning or something. No, we started at 12 midnight. They started at a much more natural division. And, and in fact, what the Jews say is, is that 
it is the next day as soon as you can see the moon and three stars. So if there were no clouds, you could see the moon and three stars. That tells you the, the time. So it varies with the season of the year. But that's what defined a new day. And that's why Jesus was crucified on a Friday. No mistake about it. He was crucified around 6 p.m. on a Friday. He, he was crucified on a Friday. He lived all day Saturday. It went into Sunday, started at 6 p.m. Our Saturday night started Sunday. And he, he rose from the dead at, the, at dawn that Sunday. He touched three days. And that's why it says he was three days. You say, well, it says three, three, uh, it, it says three days and three nights, which is idiomatic for a day. And there's many examples of that in the scripture. So, so all you had to do was touch a day to be part of it. Just like we, we will do that with, with birthdays. You know, you say someone is, is, is a year old. Well, well, uh, um, you know, we, we, we call that for the entire year. They, they could be one year and, and uh, 350 days old. And we still say they're one year old because you, you touch the year, that's the year, and then we extend to the next year. So we have the same sort of practices sometimes in some of the things we do. But there is a good thought to this that we're still living in the seventh day, this day that God is not creating new species. We don't see new species popping up all over the place. And so there is this rest. What he's speaking of here is the rest that comes to the mature believer, a rest that comes in the Lord. If you have seen a man or a woman who has walked closely with God for 50 years, you will see a peace and a rest in their life that come what may, there is a peace in their life. That doesn't mean they don't experience tragedy, they don't experience harm. They experience all sorts of things, but it doesn't shake them. There's not that same sort of shaking. The things that challenge younger believers don't challenge them anymore. There are things that challenged me as I was a believer in college that don't challenge me anymore. I remember one of the things was, was one of the guys that I had known from the time that I was before a believer. He was a good friend of mine. And then I became a believer and there was this constant draw to do things with him. This constant draw. He was a good friend of mine and he wasn't a believer and he was constantly drawing me and there was this struggle. And I remember one year, I had moved into this discipleship house and I had really been blessed and I had lived in this discipleship house this, this, uh, for a few months and I was really, you know, changing my heart. And then he said, Jim, let's drive down to New York City. And, and, uh, and I, and I said, no, Gordon, I, I don't, no, no, I'm coming. I'll pick you up. He was coming from Buffalo, New York. I was in Syracuse. That's about a, a um, three or four hour drive. He was going to pick me up in Syracuse and then we were going to drive another two and a half hours down in New York City. And I was saying, no, Gordon, I, I don't want to do it. And, and I did, just didn't know how to just flat out say, no, I'm not going. It was just a struggle. And as he's driving to come and, and pick me up, he's late and he's late and he's late and nothing. People didn't have cell phones back then. You, you know, if, if your car broke down, you were broke down. I mean, you, just, you couldn't communicate to anybody. You were just stranded. And so finally, about two hours after he's supposed to pick me up, I get a call. He says, I won't be coming. I said, what happened? He says, I was driving. This deer ran right out in front of my car. And the car's total. It was right there on the highway. And, and so I was like, this was a tremendous offering, burnt offering from the Lord. That deer was just, and it, and it dealt with the whole situation. And I was so happy that he ran into that deer because I didn't know what I was going to do if he had pulled up to the house having driven all that way. 
Now I wouldn't even be a second thought. It'd be like, oh, you're here to pay. I'm not going. I'm going to bed. See ya. I mean, it wouldn't bother me a bit. The things that challenged me back then don't challenge me anymore. You know, I have, I have different sorts of things in my life. You mature and you grow through different things, different phases in your life. And so you get into a place of real rest and spiritual maturity where you've been through things so many times. You see, the Lord will take us through. The Lord will take us through. Be, there were many months where, where, where I would pay all the bills. There was nothing left. There was nothing. In fact, the checkbook was even negative. But I had built in a little buffer. I knew how much negative I could go without, without bouncing checks. I just did that to protect myself from Shireen. <laughs> she didn't know what the buffer was. <laughs> and... and uh, so there were so many months we had nothing. I was, how are we going to get through this month? How are we going to do it? And then all of a sudden we'd get through that month. I mean, somehow we would get through. I remember I was praying, Lord, I said, Lord, it would be so good to be a consultant if I could get a consulting job. And sure enough, I got a call that week from a company in Baton Rouge, Ethel Corporation. They said, we're looking for some, co- some consultants. We're going to screen three and see which one works the best for us. And, and, you know, I thought, wow, this is great. And so they paid me for the day to go down and consult. And I got the job. And so I was going back several times a year. And to do a consulting for a day was like, in a day, I could make what, what it would take me a month to make doing a normal professor job. And it was just such a blessing. And God would drop these things in. So now, I just know that the Lord will come through. This happens again and again in your life. And this is how you mature. You see the Lord come through and it builds a Christian maturity that brings the peace that he's talking about. You know, you, you, you see your kids go through things. You just say, I, the Lord has taken us through so much. He'll take us through this too. We will survive this. We will get through. And even if, if, if you know, a loved one goes to be with the Lord, I know that the Lord will be with me. There is a rest that comes. This is Christian maturity. He says, enter into this rest. He says, enter in. And he tells them, you are not mature. He tells them because he says, later on, he's going to say that you guys need, need, need uh, uh, milk. You can't take spiritual meat. He says, he says in, verse, in verse, uh, um, verse 10, for the, for the one who has entered his rest has himself also rent, rested from his works as God did from his. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works. When you enter into this place of spiritual maturity, there is so much peace. You can look at a believer who's walked with God for decades. Walked with God for decades. And I'm not saying that people say, oh yeah, I was born a Christian. Now I'm not talking about that. People who are mature in their faith never say, I was born a Christian. You get born again a Christian. You know, if you're born in a garage, does not make you a car. Being born in a Christian home does not make you a Christian. This is something that you take upon yourself. People who have walked with God for decades, you can talk to them about things and they will get enormous amount of things done in their life. And you say, how do you get so much done? And they never seem to be, you know, flurried and just, you know, running around all all frazzled. But they get enormous amounts done. Because in the Lord, there is this tremendous strength that comes. This is what he's talking about. He says, therefore, let us be diligent in verse 11. Let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through the following the same example of disobedience. So 
you look at this, this is like antithetical. Let us be diligent to enter that rest. So I, I, I looked up this word diligent. I asked the source. I asked Siri. I said, Siri, what does diligent mean? And, 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 uh, and the definition for, for uh, uh, diligent is uh, uh, from Siri. So we know it's got to be right. So from Siri, Siri said, um, diligent, well, I can't even find what Siri said. I could ask her again. But, 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 but she said being conscientious in work. All right? And then so I said, Siri, what does rest mean? It says, refraining from work. This is antithetical. In the same sentence, let us be diligent to enter that rest. You know, I liken it to going on vacation. Say you're going to go on a, on a cruise or something. You know how much work it is to go on a cruise? I mean, you got to fill out all these forms and do all these things and fly this place and carry this luggage and stand on this line and go through these. You, you just, it's terrible trying to get on this ship. But once you're there, it's like everything is done. It's planning for a great vacation. He says, let us be diligent to enter that rest. There are steps that we have to take in order to enter that believer's rest. That's what he's talking about. There are steps that we take. There is a diligence that we take in order to enter that rest. And that diligence he's about to get into. He says in verse 12, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do, or open and laid bare to the one who is going to judge us. So in verse 11, he says, so that no one will fall through the same example of disobedience. What he's saying is you can't get away with this. Let me tell you something. If you're thinking of going back into Judaism, if you're even thinking about going back into Judaism, and you have now the intent to do it, you're not going to be able to hide this. You're not going to get away with it. He says, for the word of God is living and active. So what he does is he takes the word of God or the reckoning of God and he projects upon it life. He says, the word is life. The word of God is living. It's not only living, but it's active. It's not in a dormant state. It's not hibernating. It is living and it is active. And it is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. So when the apologists are at the table next week for lunch, ask them, what's the difference between soul and spirit? And then they start humming and hawing. And, and I know because a young lady asked me the last time Peter Williams and Nabil were there. And I said, go ask them. They're the experts. And I knew that they would fidget around. It's not an easy thing to answer. Just say, what do you mean? Whatever they answer you will be some little pet answer. Say, could you explain more? <laughs> and then watch them fidget more. This is a very difficult thing. So what the Word of God has done is it's taken two things that are very hard to distinguish, soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. He says this could just slice in. And able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Thoughts and intentions. So, so, so a, a thought is something that, that um, you, so you think about doing something, and then if you, you, you say, why am I thinking about doing this? That is now an intention. I'm thinking of, of doing this very thought. That becomes an intention. You, you see what I mean? How close these things are. 
But lots of thoughts cross our mind. Lots of thoughts cross our mind. Intentions are that I've decided I'm going to do this. I've decided I'm going to do this. God holds us responsible for our thoughts and our intentions. We cannot hold one another to our thoughts. You don't want to do that. You don't want to put upon somebody, I'm going to judge you for your thoughts. Because let me tell you something. Every young man in here will know that if their thoughts, every thought that went through their mind concerning young women throughout their lives, they'd, they'd be in prison for a million years. All right? Thoughts go through our mind. Intentions are where I've decided to do something. But we don't even penalize people in our society for intentions. Like I, I couldn't... Well, I, I intend to go out and punch that guy in the face. Well, I never found him today. Okay, well, nothing's going to happen to you. You're not going to jail. I mean, just because I had the intent to do it, I never acted upon it. So what we do is we, we judge people based on an action, and then we look at that action and we say, what was the intent? That's how our legal system works. It's like this. And, and, and if, you take a, if, if you have a, a three-year-old drop his plate and it breaks all over the ground, you're like... Oh, are you okay? I'm... Now, if you have a three-year-old, take a plate and go. <laughs> That's a very different thing. The outcome's the same, broken plate. But one is the intent, but it's the intent. It's the intent that does it. We, we have this in our legal system between manslaughter and murder. Murder, you intended to do something. Manslaughter, you, you didn't intend to do it. You were just texting. I mean, it's, it's happened. You know, you didn't intend to do it. It's a, something of intent. And, 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 and in fact, just tangential to this, we've done a lot in, in trying to understand the brain, particularly when we we're building a synthetic brain. And, and you can take a strong magnetic field and you place it behind the head and you can, you can cause people to lose perspective of intent. So in other words, that they will do things and they will, not under, they will lose all perspective of intent. They won't be able to make a judgment. And this is very much like asking a three-year-old. If you show a video to a three-year-old of, of a person uh, throwing a plate down and you show them another video of a person dropping accidentally ten plates, you say, which one was worse? The ten plates. Because a three-year-old doesn't yet understand intent. They're just looking at the sheer number of plates that broke. Isn't that an interesting thing? Anyway, so he judges between the, the thoughts and the intentions. God knows everything. Then he says, and there is no creature hidden from his sight. None of us can hide from him. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of, of him with whom we have to do or to the eyes of him who, are going to, who is going to judge us. Everything is laid open to God. This is what the word of God does to us. And this is one of the characteristics in being diligent to enter in, into that rest. What do I keep telling you guys? Learn to meditate on the scriptures every day. Every day. It doesn't work three days a week. You pick up your Bible every day, and that's the way the Word of God instructs us. It says meditation day and night or every day. It puts it those two ways in the scriptures again and again. Many verses in the scriptures. Joshua chapter 1 verse 8. Psalm 1. Psalm 112 verse 1 and 2. Psalm 119 verse 97 through 100. Again and again, it is every day, every day, every day. You do this, you are diligent, you will be diligent to enter into his rest. You will be diligent to enter into his rest if you take the word of God and make your meditation because what it does is it causes us to look and say, whoa, you know, what am I doing wrong here? 
This is what the word of God does. It catches us. It slows us down and it takes us and it says, what have I, what, what am I confronting here? And all of a sudden the word of God will expose to us our life. We're happily going on doing things. And all of a sudden we read a verse in the word of God and we're like, uh oh, I have to change my way. And that's exactly what it's all about. Nothing is hidden from his sight. So he drops in things. He drops in passages. You can be reading about a passage and then all of a sudden you remember something that you did to somebody. You say, wow, I need to go and apologize. I need to deal with it. And if you think that that's just some skeleton in the closet, you can just shut the door. That skeleton keeps kicking the door open. I mean, and you'll go year after year. Take it and address, address it at some point. Address it. And the Bible says the best time to address it is today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. This is what he's encouraging us to do. Then he goes on in verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So see what he says again. What confession is he talking about? He's mentioned the confession before. He speaks about the confession of their faith. So if you go, as we covered back in, 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 uh, in, in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, he talks about the confession that they had already received the Messiah. So this is not a question of bringing the unbeliever into faith. It is a question of the believer thinking that they can do the things, they can go back into the world and still somehow come back into Christ. He says, it's not going to happen. You're going to destroy your life. You're not going to lose your salvation. But what you're going to lose is you're going to lose the prospect of the believer's rest. You will lose the prospect of the believer's rest. That's what you're going to lose. And to them in particular, it was their life. For us in particular, when we want to go back from already claiming the things of Christ and back into the ways of the world... I'll tell you what we will lose. We will lose peace in our marriage. We'll lose relationship with our children. We'll lose relationship with people at work. Everything becomes a conflict. Everybody's upset with me. Everybody, and, and all of these conflicts start arising. You will begin to lose your rest very quickly. It doesn't take long. There's enough junk in our hearts to very quickly start drawing us into all sorts of problems. He says, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, and this passing through the heavens, if you look at the tense of this in Greek, what it suggests is he has passed through and he has arrived to the place he remains there. He has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. How does he address him? Jesus, the Son of God. He uses the name of humanity. Jesus' name, his human name, Jesus. He calls him Jesus. Our faithful high priest, he calls him Jesus. He is saying we have access to him now. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So he says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. So you have that double negative. So it means we have a high priest who can sympathize. We have a high priest who can sympathize with what we go through, with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things. Jesus lived as a man. You know, we could say, oh, God, you don't know what I'm going through. Uh, actually, I do. Actually, I've lived there. Actually, I do. And, and, and by the way, when I was there, I had all the sins of the world put on me. Have you ever had that put on you? It's kind of rough, you know. And I was crucified. Have you ever been crucified, by the way? 
You know, so he's actually been through a lot more. Not exactly the same thing. He's been tempted in different ways. The, the devil came up to him and tempted him. It says he had fasted 40 days and he said, turn these stones into bread. I ask you, how many of you have ever been tempted to turn stones into bread? How many? Have you ever been tempted to do that? I've not. Because we don't have the capability to do it. So there's not a temptation. But Jesus had not eaten for 40 days. It says he became hungry. And the devil said, okay, use your messianic powers to turn those stones into bread. To him, that was a temptation. Not for us. So different people are tempted in different ways. Different people go through different types of temptations. But the scriptures tell us, Actually, in, in, in uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, it says that there are three types of temptation. There's the, the, the temptation of the flesh, the temptation of the eyes, and the temptation of pride. There are those three classes of temptation. Jesus experienced all of those. All of those. Everything we go through fits into that. Into this, in, into 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. Everything fits into one of those categories. Jesus was tempted with all of those. Can you imagine tempting God? I know who's going to win on that one. <laughs> That's what the devil did. Jesus has been tempted, yet he was without sin. This is what he calls us to. He calls us into a depth of relationship with him. And we'll cover that last verse next time. Let's pray. Abba, Father, thank you so much for your word, for the truth of your word. And I pray, Father, that in the name of Jesus, you would take these young people and you would build them up in the truth of the Holy Spirit and in the truth of your way. Father, I pray that for those who have received your word into their hearts, that you would give them strength to walk in your way, that they may be diligent to enter the believer's rest. Father, I pray for those here who do not know you. Father, save their souls, I pray. Save their souls. Bring them into relationship with Jesus Christ, the one who has lived for them and died for them and rose from the dead and lives to make intercession on their behalf. Lord, I pray that you draw them into fellowship with your son. Father, your mercies upon these young people. Draw them close to Jesus for the glory of God and in his name. Amen.